everybody, and welcome back to the Iron Mist. Clang clang. Yeah. <laughs> sound effect they have. Kind of a weak clanging noise there. Well, I got really a Mark Seven production. That's what I was going uh, for. There you go. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic, and people call me Little Wisecracker. And every month here at the Iron List. Whitney Seibold and I present our competitive top 10 lists of a particular topic as selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And uh, boy, do they keep us guessing. <laughs> we always we always put in like a couple of like somewhat straightforward things, a couple of weird ones. The weird ones often win. And uh, this month is no exception. This month we are talking about the best mystery science theater 3000 movies. Not episodes. That's a different thing. We're talking about the very best films that were selected to be lampooned on the program Mystery Science Theater 3000, a show which ostensibly, according to the lyrics, uh, finds the worst we can find, the worst movies that are available uh, to talk over and provide an amusing running commentary before. And as such, uh, many films have their entire, like, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's entire reputation. Uh-huh built around their appearance on this show. They've earned their bad movie street cred. Problem is, are they all bad movies? Regardless of whether or not they're funny, regardless Mm. of whether or not it's a funny episode, are they all, quote-unquote, bad? And that's the question we're going to talk about. The the word they use is cheesy. Mm. They they like to show cheesy movies. The worst we can find. the, The worst cheesy movies they can find. And cheese uh, isn't inherently bad. Now, uh, I, we talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000 a lot on our, this show because we're both big fans. Uh, I've seen a lot of it. I have it all, but I haven't watched every episode yet. So I actually also have missed quite a few episodes, especially in the later sci-fi channel years. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I didn't have the sci-fi channel, like it wasn't available on my cable mm-hmm. now, on my uh, cable package. So I missed a lot of those episodes, and I haven't caught up to every single one of them. So there's probably some omissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be a couple, especially those late era films, where you go, hey... Trying to think of an example. Merlin's House of So-and-So. What was Mystical that Wonders. Merlin's House of Mystical Wonders. That was a great movie. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I actually didn't, I actually missed that one. Sorry. Yeah, so I, I haven't seen all the episodes, but uh, Mystery Science Theater was very formative for you and I, and for a lot of people our age, uh, like of our generation, who were watching it when it was running live on the air in like the early to late 90s. Oh, the late 80s originally. I think, yeah, I think started, the first season... It's, in K, it started in KT, uh, KTMA in Minnesota in 1988, mm-hmm. and uh, ran until 19... It's like... 2000, I think, it ended up going off. It ran proper, to at least the late then, 90s then they, then they on various it on, networks. And then they yeah, rebooted it on uh, uh, mm. Netflix mm-hmm. that spun off into various other projects like The Film Crew and Rift Tracks and, and Cinematic, Cinematic Titanic, Titanic yeah. and, uh, which are all very uh, similar. And they're all based on this notion of watching movies with uh, people giving running commentary. Yeah. Typically making gags or pointing out yeah. gaffes in the movie. Yeah. And, and the idea is that you're watching other <clears throat> people watch a movie and say funny things, and that in and of itself is funny, and often it is. Uh, 
the premise was uh, inspired by this notion that a lot of TV stations ran movies late at night uh, to run all night because there was uh, there was a time when TV stations went off the air. Mm. Uh, then TV stations thought they could get a few more commercials in there if they ran uh, movies all night, and they were able to get movies for like super duper cheap in these gigantic packages. Yeah, often they were public domain, so they didn't have to pay anything. Yeah, and they all and so every little tiny rinky dink TV station everywhere in the country had their own store of films mm-hmm. that they would run uh, kind of arbitrarily, and, and many of them had hosts. Yeah, eventually like they fun characters. They who would yeah put like a tiny bit of production value and a horror, usually a horror host, but other hosts as well. Yeah, would introduce the movie, maybe give some context, or just say funny things about it. And yeah, that's where that's the tradition from which uh, Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand came, and uh, it was created by Joel Hodgson. The premise was he was on a satellite in space. Evil scientists were sending him these bad movies, and he would talk about them with robot companions that he yeah. built himself. And, and it's really and the robots were puppets. And it's a clever like ex- extrapolation on the original like late night sci-fi mm-hmm. horror movie host idea. Whereas Elvira, for example, would watch the movie and then return to give running commentary or to make a few jokes for like a minute and a half, like just before the commercial or just after the commercial. Mystery Science Theater would do it during the film, and we would mm-hmm. see the silhouettes of the characters who were stranded up in space and were being tortured with bad movies for the purpose of a really silly science experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and as a result, they just had this weird cavalcade of movies, many of them public domain, some of them famous, many of them quite obscure. Uh, and uh, yeah, some of these movies had some reputation before MST3K got to them, and mm-hmm. some of them built a reputation exclusively on being on MST3K. No one knew what Manos the Hands of Fate was <laughs> until Mystery Science Theater 3000 did an entire episode and pretty much declared it the worst movie of all time, and there is a legit argument to I, be made I from that it, one. I think in, they've said in interviews that it's a tie between Manos and Monster a Go-Go mm. uh, as the worst film that they've had to watch yeah. f- for, over the course of the show. Any episode but, uh, where they actually claimed they saw the worst movie ever is usually good. My favorite, I think my favorite <laughs> one is actually The Castle of Fu Manchu, where every time they tried to do like a sketch in between bits, they just started breaking down and crying because it was so <laughs> dull and incomprehensible. <laughs> talk about the movie It's a terrible film. It's a legitimately terrible film. So a lot of the movies they watched were really, really terrible. Uh, what, what they brought to the, the culture at large, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 people, uh, was A, this way of remixing all of popular culture in your brain so that everything connects. Mm. Uh, so you can be watching this really horrible old movie, but you can sort of throw in a reference to another movie mm. and all of a sudden there's the, this pop culture map that forms around you and all of these yeah. things lead to one another. It's almost like a stream of consciousness. You've ingested mm. so much popular culture, so much music and movies and TV and comics that if someone says something, mm. there's a decent chance that if that's similar to something else you've heard, you'll just fill it in. Like, oh yeah, this is my little old lady. Mm. And then you might think to yourself, oh, from Pasadena. Mm. That's barely a joke, <laughs> but like, it's kind of funny. It's, it's not a joke, but you you yeah. made that connection. And yeah. you know, this was clearly made by and intended for people who are raised in media saturation. So it's this way of trying to reconcile all of the media in your brain and just sort of you're seeing media only through the lens of other media. Uh, there's other shows that de- dealt with this. Uh, Dream On was another show mm-hmm. like that. It was about a, a, a man who grew up watching so much TV that 
all of his in-brain reactions were clips from old TV shows. There were a lot of, like, random clips throughout. Sadly, the actual show is actually a pretty bad sitcom, but the concept of the running commentary connecting a what we see to older movies and shows was better than yeah, the, the actual program. The gimmick were the clips and they had boobs in it. Because that, it was all, on HBO. It was on yeah. HBO. So they got a new and yet, one, not on really... HBO Max. Yeah, they have everything on HBO Max, except for Tales from the Crypt, their best show ever. Yeah. It's not on there. Yeah. Uh, what Mystery Science Theater also taught us was uh, that bad movies can be enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, you watch these movies, you can kind of dismiss them. These are pieces of garbage. You don't want to watch the films. They're, they're but, cheap. They're naively written. You know, they're they, they're badly acted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Mystery Science Theater uh, kind of popular, not popularized. This was always a thing. You sit around, make fun of, you know, rag on a bad movie. I think it friends. institutionalized the idea. There you go. It institutionalized this notion that you can sit and watch a bad movie and through these pop culture lenses that it taught you to look through, uh, find a good deal of perhaps ironic, perhaps even genuine enjoyment mm. out of these horrible movies that TV stations were just throwing away. I think it was putting a new kind of value on these things. I think that I think what often happened with these kinds of movies where people there are people who are, are always people who are on their wavelength. Every mm. movie, no matter how cheesy, uh, uh, badly made for whatever that's worth, uh, every, every movie has at least one fan out there mm-hmm. somewhere, at least one person who thought it was fine. Um, but for everyone else who would quickly dismiss these films because, oh, the visual effects are cheap, or mm-hmm. oh, the acting is so wooden, or oh, the dialogue is so bad, I think what MST3K at its best can teach us is that through the process of active engagement, not passive engagement, mm-hmm. not just sitting there and letting the movie wash over you because it's just not competent enough for that, it's not engaging enough for that, but through active engagement, you can get something out of anything. And I think that's something that I internalized. Mm-hmm. The other thing I liked about MST3K was that it was a great way to introduce people to older, mostly genre films uh, that they might not otherwise have ever watched. Especially in, that the, in the 90s when home video was more prevalent and there were fewer people staying up all night to watch whatever happened to be on TV. Mm-hmm. And nowadays that's happening less and less and less. So MST3K is keeping a lot of these films alive. So when I came up with my list of the best movies that were on MST3K, there's a couple that are from episodes I haven't seen, but I'm familiar with the films. Okay. But the majority of these are from episodes of MST3K where when I watch the MST3K episode, I get wrapped up in the movie and I start tuning out the jokes. (laughs) And there's quite a few of those where I just think I just think that there is. Yeah, again, there's some ineptitude involved here. Most of these movies, not all, Mm. but I think most of the movies might on some conventional level be considered not good. But I also think that there is some mad genius at work in a lot of these yeah, and there's some yeah. interesting ideas and there's a lot you can really latch onto and truly enjoy. And I would say that there is at least <laughs> maybe two movies on my list Aww. that I can unapologetically uncategorically say are good, okay. maybe even great. The rest are movies that I quite like and I think deserve hmm. to be seen outside of MST3K. Hmm. And some of these were made by like mad auteurs. And I, yeah. I appreciate if you uh, go for a nice long swim years long in the trenches of B movie garbage. Yeah. 
names will start to appear. Mm. Bert I. Gordon. Bert, yeah, you'll Roger see, Corman. You'll see the names yeah. like Bert I. Gordon or Coleman Francis. Oh, Coleman and Francis. <laughs> the hairs on the back of my neck just turned up. Yeah, Bert, Bert I. Gordon, uh, Coleman Francis, uh, um, various auteurs of the B-movie. For Ed Wood was on, yeah, on Mr. Yeah, Sincere. naturally Ed Wood. Uh, and you'll understand that a tour theory does apply to these people. Oh yeah. Uh, Coleman Francis did have uh, themes he liked to revisit mm-hmm. and, and situations and even certain shots he liked to have. It's yeah. just you, you, largely it's pretty easy. Incompetent. If you watched like five random crappy movies from the same year, you could pick out the Coleman Francis one pretty easy. And I think that is the real definition of auteur theory. It's not some highfalutin thing about what's better or worse. It's just like, did that filmmaker really put a stamp on it? Yes, uh, uh, auteur. If, if, if you poke around online, you can actually find somebody made a fake uh, Eclipse series <laughs> box set cover for the films of Coleman Francis. Okay, I'm totally searching for that like right now. I really want to see the, that. The Skydivers, uh, Red Zone Cuba, oh. and uh, I think the Beast of Yucca Flats. Oh, oh Beast of Yucca Flats. One of the most unwatchable movies ever made. Yeah, and Beast of Yucca Flats is one of those things where like they lost the soundtrack, so yeah. they had to like dub over a lot of oh, it and just Gotta save, save this project had. somehow. I've, I have worked on some short films where something akin to that has happened and mm. it's just like damn it we gotta turn this in we gotta turn into yeah. <laughs> gotta... we have this footage of Tor Johnson and monster makeup wandering around in the desert we can't just let it go to waste bless whoever did this the films of Coleman Francis <laughs> parachutes coffee and cigarettes <laughs> it's so great uh, no Coleman Francis films are on my list or mine uh, um, but I, can I may I start uh, yeah, I'm curious how much overlap we're gonna have here. I know I'm, I'm. If I were to bet money, I think we have the same number one. Uh, maybe not. Really? Because uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what you picked for your number one. Okay. Um, All right. I thought I knew what you picked too, but maybe not. Uh, I'm gonna pick an. Uh, I'm gonna start with a film from 1953 called Robot Monster. Uh, by a director named Phil Tucker. I, I uh, knew you were going to put this on there. Okay. I knew you were going to put this on there. Because it's because Robot Monster is like one of the crown jewels of B-movies. It, yeah, it's, just, it's weird. It, it's um, So it's about an alien named Roman. Mm. And Roman is one of the most absurd film creations you've ever seen. But yeah. let's not describe him just yet. Because the story, as it goes, is actually incredibly uh, winsome and, and, and sad. Uh, it's about Roman who has to kill all of humanity and has succeeded. There are yeah. eight human beings left on the entire planet. And he kills a few more off right mm. away. Yeah. Like, it's it's actually kind of interesting. I actually really like the setup. Well, the setup is weird because it's actually like a bunch of kids having a picnic with their single mom. And it's like, I met an archaeologist. Would you marry him? I'm like, oh, that's weird. But then, like... Yeah, the kid gets hit with, like, lightning or some shit, and then he wakes up in this weird distant future with this Wizard of Oz thing where the people are, like, repurposed Mm. and whatever. But, like, yeah, the basic premise of the sci-fi angle is Earth has been conquered, all of humanity is dead, and now there's just one alien left on the planet, left to just clean up afterwards. Like, shit, there's eight of them left. God, it was easy when they were everywhere. Now Wait, I gotta have, find these assholes. Have you ever had to work like a twelve-hour shift yeah. at a crappy retail job, and like the the business is closed, and now you just gotta clean up, and you reach this weird sort of dizzy high at the end. It's like yeah. the day is over. I'm nearly <laughs> done, and you're like kind of weirdly happy to be there at that point. Yeah, but you realize how kind of 
pathetic that is, that's where Roman is. And Roman, even though there's only eight of them left, has now started to really look at humans mm-hmm. and understands that they live better than he does. Mm-hmm. And he becomes attracted to them. He becomes envious of their lives. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's an attempt at poetry mm-hmm. here when you're not looking at Roman <laughs> and realizing he's in a gorilla suit with a diver's helmet and his <laughs> and, big he, antenna. <laughs> and again, he conquered the planet. Where is he living? He's living in a cave with a bubble machine. It just makes bubbles. Not even big bubbles. Just little they, bubbles. They carry uh, his, his native planet's uh, breathing gases. I don't know. Sure, I don't know. Uh, worse. They're, they're worse no prizes to award. Yeah. Roman, it, like, people talk about Plan 9 from Outer Space all the time, but Robot Monster needs to be in that conversation. It's on mm. that level. It's that of, memorably you know, it's, bad. It's, yeah. like, weird, and and uh, the, the director is weirdly devoted to this... Uh, Phil Tucker is devoted to this premise. Mm. And I think completely by accident infuses Roman with this deep tragic sadness that you can actually feel through all of this ridiculousness. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's, it's weird and mm-hmm. it it is weird in an exciting way, which I really like because mm-hmm. it's weird in a way that like clearly someone was passionate about this and there's almost like this like proto William Cameron Menzies or Tim Burton kind of vibe to it. Mm. They don't have the budget, but just like the way that they film Roman when he's on like a video camera with another ape and a diving helmet. And there's something <laughs> just a little transportive, a little otherworldly, a little like this is a child's dream gone wrong mm. kind of thing. And he doesn't have the budget or really even the skill to pull it off, but it's clearly the intent. And I think it is possible to get pulled into it. Yeah. But God, is it cheap and slow? It's, uh, <laughs> they, they filmed it in California. It looks yes. like Topanga Canyon. It, yeah. it evidently was shot like near, uh, like a building. They had just laid the foundation for a building like near Dodger Stadium, ah. and they just snuck in and they used that. Uh, they they filmed it for sixteen grand. Wow, that's it. That was pretty cheap even at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd have to look up like inflation, but that's, that's still that's pretty still, damn like, cheap. Less than a million dollars by today's mm. today's dollars. Way less, mm. way less than a million. I mean, it's not the cheapest movie ever. Even yeah, but like yeah, that's uh, that's really fucking cheap. But I I do appreciate that Robot Monster uh, exemplifies this really exciting time in movies <laughs> when uh, movie theaters, thanks to car culture, uh, there was a lot of drive-in movie theaters, and movie theaters were opening up. Uh, there was a big economic boom after the war, and. With so many theaters now open, and with the Paramount Accords now out of out of uh, commission, mm-hmm. uh, and now movie theaters, theaters were allowed movie to theaters show whatever, allowed to they book whatever they yeah. wanted. There were a lot of just local filmmakers who could run out to Topanga Canyon, shoot a monster movie in four days for sixteen grand, print it up, have it ready to go by Friday, and, and get just, real distribution. And get, yeah, and yeah. Get distribution for these things. You just needed somebody with enough gumption and somebody willing to do the legwork, and people like Phil Tucker could thrive. It was yeah. wonderful. All right, well, for my film uh, that I'm going to start us out with, I'm also going to start with uh, a low-budget black-and-white sci film. This is from 1957. Uh, and it's a movie that's notorious and notoriously bad. And much like Robot Monster, I think that there is an earnest attempt mm. at cinematic poetry here. <laughs> Successful? Eh, but earnest. Mm-hmm. The Amazing Colossal Man. 
<laughs> okay, all right. I dig the I'm amazing not, colossal man. I, I I dig it too. I'm not sure if I agree with you, but here's the, uh, yeah. What what sin <laughs> could a man commit a single lifetime to deserve this? Okay, let me let me let me set the groundwork for the amazing colossal man. If anyone hasn't seen the episode or the movie. The Amazing Colossal Man opens in like the middle of a desert where a scientist is uh, setting up uh, a big experimental new kind of nuclear bomb. Mm. Someone wanders into the field of that bomb and a heroic individual. Glenn Manning. uh, No, no, Glenn Manning actually tries to rescue someone. He tries to rescue someone from being blown up by this bomb. He ends up getting irradiated with a new kind of irradiation that turns him into a gigantic monster. This predates the Hulk. Just so we're clear here, this came out quite a few years before the creation of the Incredible Hulk. You know and Stan Lee saw this movie. I right? highly suspect Stan Lee saw this movie, or at least read a review or something. It's based on a, on a short novel. It's unofficially based on it. But somewhere in this, this somehow trickled down. This is my theory. And at least kind of became the Hulk because it is on the fucking nose. <laughs> and it even, and it ends up being, here's this guy, his name is Glenn Manning. He uh, starts growing. And not like the Hulk where he grows like 10 feet tall and stops. Like mm-hmm. he just keeps growing and he will keep growing. It's the opposite of the Incredible Shrinking Man. And it's becoming comical. He doesn't have any clothes. He ends up wearing a diaper all the time. It's humiliating. Scorched all his hair off, so he's bald too. Yeah, yeah. So he looks like a giant baby, which yeah is a is a is a chuckle worthy image because it's just a guy sitting in a room full of doll furniture. But mm. if you can pull like the the your your like if, if you can suspend your disbelief enough to feel for the guy, there's a reason he's sad and depressed and angry. And he doesn't know how long this is going to go. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if this is curable. And he's full of rage, and he ends up going on a Hulk rampage through, is it Las Vegas or Reno? It's Reno. Yeah. Uh, And he starts, like, you know, and it's a good, like, uh, you know, visual effects uh, thing, because you get to see, like, this guy, like, walk up to, like, these big recreations of, like, giant neon Mm. billboards and things and break them. The military's attacking him, you know, like the Hulk. Um, There's some fun actual experiments with, like, Adding in color for like effects, like when he's electrocuted by power yeah. lines. It's just not one shot. But well, it's yeah. still effective though. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Bird Eye Gordon and is a filmmaker who he's kind of like Roger Corman. He made a lot of crap, but every once in a while he made pretty good crap. Kind of almost by accident. Yeah, possibly almost by accident. But mm-hmm. unlike Roger Corman, who would just churn something out just to churn it out, Bird Eye Gordon had some ambition. Bird Eye Gordon thought of himself as some kind of Z-movie Robert Zemeckis, where, like, (laughs) he would always go all out and try, at the very least, to put some visual effects spectacle in his movies. Mm. Oftentimes, because it's not a complicated visual effect to do, he would just do really big things, like really big bugs. Like, I, I can make... I can with using pretty basic photographic techniques. I can make these bugs look really huge. Bernard Gordon was beginning of the end as well. Wasn't yeah, he? yeah, yeah. He did he did big bugs. Hmm. He did big animals. He did big people. He did little people. He did a lot of size effects. But then he would also do, uh, um, you know, other types of stories. He did this one 
semi-Hitchcockian story called Tormented, which was also an MST3K episode, about a guy who's being blackmailed by his lover, you know, so that he'll ruin his prospective marriage. He's marrying into a good family. He's going to be set for life. Uh, and so he kills her, and then her ghost torments him. Hmm. And the ghost effects are pretty good for a low-budget you know, yeah, horror film from the 50s. It's a severed head on a coffee table sort of stuff. And... Yeah, but it, it's pretty good for the era. Like, mm. it's not that bad. Like, So, like, I always appreciated that Bird Eye Gordon, at the very least, put some effort yeah. into his better <laughs> movies. And this is definitely one of those examples where, again, there's something kind of old-fashioned, Stanley pure about this. It's like, imagine if... A low-budget filmmaker, a couple years after this, picked up a Hulk comic and said, I can turn this into a monster movie for next to nothing. Mm. And bought the rights to it and said, does he have to be green? Great. Can he just get really tall? <laughs> Great. Set. And can, can I change the name? Great. Okay. Here's, and then we got the amazing Colossal Man. Here's what I kind of wish that all like all of the Marvel characters that are currently owned by Disney, some mm. weird legal thing happens and the rights lapse. And Blumhouse, like, in the middle of the night, just notices right when they drop and snatches them all up. Yeah. And start making, like... Micro-budget versions. Mi micro-budget versions of, yeah. like, the Hulk and Iron Man and I would, stuff. Those would be, I think, far more interesting movies. I would love... And, they, and they've and they done that a little bit. Like, Blumhouse has done some, like, work in that... They did a really interesting film. I think they acquired it, actually. But it was mm -hmm. still a low-budget genre film. They did a really interesting superhero-type film called Slight. A oh, couple it, of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. S-L-E-I-G-H-T. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a pretty neat film. It's about a guy who is studying to be a street mu uh, magician. He wants to uh, be like the next Chris Angel or whatever. But like, mm. um, and so he's doing tricks, you know, card tricks, coin tricks, making things disappear, making things float on the street. But to make ends meet, he's also dealing drugs. He ends up uh, pissing off uh, his drug dealer boss. And he ends up having to use his magical abilities to basically like save his family from these bad guys but the thing is is that he's actually gone so far to try to perfect these like magical tricks mm. that he for all intents and purposes kind of does have superpowers it's very low budget but it's quite good it's pretty clever it's interesting it goes in odd directions and um yeah, I dig it. So that can be done. And I feel like that's very much in the spirit of something like The Amazing Colossal Man, although a lot better. Um, so yeah, The Amazing Colossal Man. Good? No. Totally watchable and interesting and kind of genuine? Sure. <laughs> well, I also have a Bert High Gordon film on my list. Oh, I, often, I have another Bert High Gordon oh, film no! on my list. I wonder if it's the same film. <laughs> Mine is Village of the Giants. I do not have that oh, one. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Village of the Giants is just... Like pure grindhouse drive-in kind of fair. Uh, it came out in 1965, uh, directed by Bert High Gordon, and yes, it's about it's another size effects movie. It's about uh, Bo Bridges and his group of rowdy JDs, mm -hmm. teenagers. Who uh, the movie starts with this really long mud wrestling sequence, which is really bizarre. Yeah, they crashed their car on the side of the road, and they're just they're, like they're laying so in the road. They've been thrown by, by the yeah. car. That they're just like, oh, well, let's wrestle in all this mud. And you just realize that, like, that's where we are with this film, isn't it? Huh. And, and what I appreciate about Village of the Giants is it's sort of like a, a Frankie and Annette kind of movie. Oh, yeah. Very, very cheesy uh, so, yeah, teens the, and an adventure the, kind of story. There's cheesy teen adventures. There's a, a, a boy genius who's named Genius. Who played is a, by? Played by Ron Howard. Yes. <laughs> 
played by a young Ron Howard. He was like maybe nine or ten when he made this movie, and he has invented uh, a goo that he calls goo that when he feeds <laughs> to animals makes them grow very very large. There's a great and there's giant ducks running around. There's a great bit. He makes these giant ducks, and the ducks like run out of the house. And uh, Tommy Kirk from all the Disney movies is in this as the as uh, you know the the teen idol hero, mm-hmm. and uh, he runs after the ducks, and the ducks wander into a go go club, <laughs> and the ducks are dancing with all the go go dancers. Everyone like these ducks are great. Next scene, literally next scene, they're in the park and they're cooking giant ducks, <laughs> which means that they slaughtered these giant beasts. And like gutted them and cut off their heads in the park. That takes a lot of work to That's cook a duck. Just killing them alone. Their hides are probably thick. <laughs> I want to see that deleted scene. Holy yeah. crap. So we, we have this kind of already this twisted Medfield College like mirror universe movie. Yeah. It's like the computer wore tennis shoes, but darker and weirder. Yeah. And then imagine that the villains are like... Evil juvenile delinquents. Yeah, they're, they're like they're who, like one uh, step removed from the bad guys in a bikini beach movie. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they themselves get their hands on goo, and the the JDs grow to enormous size and decide they're going to rule the town. Yeah, as giants, giants. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tommy Kirk is in it. Ron Howard is in it. Bo Bridges is in it, uh, and. Uh, Tony Basil is in it. Oh, she I forgot like, about she Tony Basil. She does the Basil, choreography. Yeah. It was one of her earlier movies. That's hilarious. Uh, Tony Basil, if you don't know the name, uh, you she know did. Tony Basil, just in case some people are young, it's, it's she she did the uh, she did Hey Mickey. Those her yeah her her one hit wonder in yeah. in her music career, but she had a much more uh, thriving dance career. Yeah, she she's a choreographer a for everybody. very accomplished dancer and choreographer. She's done choreography for a lot of shit that would probably surprise you. Like she's incredibly prolific. You know, she was you also know the mom in Rockula, which is of course one of the most wonderful movies ever made. Yeah, she she's been in, in several movies, and she's always a delight because she's mm. just such a wonderful kooky person. Yeah, uh, she choreographed uh, Once in a Lifetime. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. I'm talking about, about that. Heads video, like those yeah. those weird gyrations that David Byrne did. Mm-hmm. She choreographed that. that was no, she's a really genius. She's a legit genius. Mm-hmm. This is a fun one. It didn't make my list. There's something about it that, like, I talked about how the Amazing Colossal Man feels like a little sincere. Mm-hmm. This one feels pretty cynical to me. This one feels like this is just Bird Eye Gordon, like ah, kids like shirtless hunks and go go dancing. Yeah, but I like that kind of thing. I, I know, appreciate this, this, that sort of teen exploitation things. I appreciate that, but there's something just kind of slick and wicked about it that I don't enjoy. There's something about it that just feels like kind of gross. I like Ron Howard in it. I think Ron Howard's in the right movie. Yeah, I think Ron Howard is in this golly gee whiz. I just built like a you know a Don Knotts kind mm. of contraption or whatever. But um, yeah, I feel like Bo Bridges is in a creepier movie. Like Bo Bridges <laughs> well, is taking yeah, it too seriously and like mm. weirdly like forcing people to take this drug that they don't understand. Yeah, and, and, the, and they they dance in slow motion, and they you probably heard the music because it was repurposed for Death Proof. Oh yeah. yeah. That's the Village of the Giants music. Yeah, except you're going to see Bo Bridges and a couple of, like, you know, JD actors who you'll never probably recognize anything well, one else of them again. is uh, Joy, what's her name? Joy, um... Hmm. She was in Star Trek. She was in uh, an episode of Batman. Joy Harmon is her Yeah, name. yeah, she was in stuff, but, yeah. like, still, people, most people wouldn't know their names. Yeah, she was... She was most famous for being pretty girl watching car in Cool Hand Luke. If you ever wanted to see an abusive shirtless Bo Bridges dancing, he was fifty feet tall and dancing 
in very slow motion. <laughs> Village of the Giants is the movie for you. I'm going to I'm going to see your Village of the Giants, and I'm going to raise you. Oh, let's no. just get him out of the way. Okay. I'm going to raise you the other Bird Eye Gordon film on my list. <laughs> what does the I stand for? I don't know. No, the the joke on Mystery Science Theater is I am so ashamed. Ah, yes. I don't know. I thought it was a pretty good answer to that. Yeah, well, that was a good answer. Uh, but no, my number nine, if, again, these aren't ranked. We do them in whatever order we decide, and then we save our number one for number one. Something's got to be our, our top pick. Uh, but my, my next choice uh, is the Magic Sword. <laughs> Which is out of character for Bird Eye Gordon. Yeah, it's a weirdly, not only is it a, a pretty big production, like there's real money in this, there's also a real cast in it too it's got basil rathbone estelle winwood gary lockwood and like that's pretty damn good all of the i mean they weren't all at a high point in their career when they made this movie but it's a decent pedigree um and this is a big sword and sorcery epic uh, the likes of which we would get a lot more of in like the 80s mm. with something like, uh, you know, Excalibur, Conan, Dragon Slayer. Um, but uh, it's the story of uh, a young man who has been raised in the woods by an elderly kooky witch played by the amazing Estelle Winwood. Uh, and uh, he falls in love through a vision in a magic pool with a princess who is, of course, immediately kidnapped by Basil Rathbone. And she's going to be fed to a dragon. The dragon plays itself. It's one of those things where they pretend they got a real dragon oh, in the I'm, credits. I'm looking over the credits of, of uh, The Magic Sword and Myla Normie is in it. You might, know, you might know her better as Vampira. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm. That's, I think she plays a witch. Um... Uh, she, okay. He, and he ends up, basically what happens is he ends up taking all of like the magical, like armor and sword he was going to get on his 18th birthday. And he ends up stealing it all, locking his, his foster mom in the basement and going off to have an adventure. And he's going to rescue the princess and he's going to wage war against Basil Rathbone and he's going to fight giants and like weird <laughs> giants yeah, of course they're giants oh, but it's bird eye gordon they're not gonna he's not gonna let us down what are bird eye gordon's initials yeah uh big big and uh and it ends with actually for the time mm -hmm. okay this is a 19 what is it 1962 this is a 1962 movie for the time a pretty good dragon <laughs> like it's, you it's actually, a nice looking dragon it's a pretty big puppet you know it's got multiple i think it's got multiple heads it breathes real fire it actually looks okay it's cheesy by today's standards but for the time no one well, was making better dragons unless you're ray bradbury here's what i want to say about special effects and this goes across the board up until today i don't care how real they look yeah i don't even necessarily care how convincing they are I just want to be wowed in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. Even if I can see the strings, if it's a cool design, then I'm going to be on board. That's why a film like Society strikes so hard. Mm. Like, well, I mean, yeah, you can see how they're doing that, but wow, I've never seen it done that way before. <laughs> I don't even think I've seen what they were doing in the movie Society Well, I, before. actually, it's kind of hard to the, tell. The but... ending of the movie Society, I will not ruin it Please for you. Do not. Don't even Google it. <laughs> Just see this weird movie about, I think it's this adopted son or whatever, and like a really rich family who begins to think that his parents are like 
involved just, in like a, a some sort of conspiracy witch, or witch cult or something. Cult of some yeah, kind. he th- yeah. he thinks that like his rich family is involved in something really untoward, and he has no fucking idea. And the ending of that movie is one of the most holy shit endings. Trust me, it, don't look anything up. Just see it. Just watch society. Holy fuck. <laughs> and if you're thinking to yourself, this isn't that great, get just to the wa- ending. Just wait. Just, just wait. get to the ending. I promise you, whether you love it or hate it, you will go, well, I ain't never seen that before. Hmm. And that's what I want to say when I, whenever I see a special effect. Yeah. When I see like a creative visual. Yeah. And it I doesn't think, have to be slick or even convincing. And I think Magic Sword is full of creativity. I think it's full of different magical ideas. It's naive. It feels like a kid's movie. It is a kids movie. It is yeah. a kids movie. Like that's what it feels. Kids, it plays like film. it plays like a little kids movie. But mm-hmm. as a little kids movie, Tart's in a pretty good place. Uh, the monsters and stuff look pretty good, especially for the era. Mm-hmm. It's colorful. It's bright. Basil Rathbone's having a good time. Estelle Winwood's having a great time. She's very funny in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's corny and and totally something you can riff on and have a good time. But Magic Sword. I just watch that. <laughs> I would just watch that and I have a pretty good time. And yeah, I talk back to the screen a little bit too, but I would be thoroughly engaged by it on its own. So mm. I think that one deserves a bit of a, a better reputation. All right, let's let's get away from Bird Eye Gordon. You that's okay. your that's your only Bird Eye that, Gordon. That's my film. only Bird Eye Gordon okay. film. Let's get away from Bird Eye um, Gordon. He's been taking up too much space. I, I do have other Which is ironic for Bird Eye Gordon. Because <laughs> he's so I, big. I do have other giant things on my list. Of I'm course you fucking stick do. on that, to, uh, that All right. tack. And when we're talking about the best films featured on Mystery Science Theater, they often would feature like a truncated version mm. or a TV edit mm. or an English dub of a, of a non-English speaking uh, film. Yeah. And that would sort of deteriorate the film a little bit. Sometimes these mm. edits would cut mm. out large chunks of the movie. Or they the would make the film a little less bad. comprehensible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and these are usually for so, time. And, and also, this is for time. Also, they would have like a TV uh, transfer of like some, like a, a copy of a copy. Like they got the 16 millimeter yeah. version of the film and it was not in the right aspect ratio. It's actually weird to see the uh, MST3K that they put out on Netflix because they clearly had a mandate to make sure the movies actually looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. And it almost looks too good to feel like MST3K for me. I kind of yeah, want it to yeah. look like it, they're doing it so, off of a VHS. So uh, a couple of the films on my list are going to be the proper version. That's fair. We're talking about the original movie. The original movie. That's fair. And uh, and they did several Godzilla movies, including Ebida Horror of the Deep. Okay. Which is one where uh, Godzilla fights a giant lobster. Uh, (laughs) Now, wasn't that under, like, Godzilla versus the sea monster? Yeah, the... the, uh, English language, the American title was Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Um, in Japan, it was translated to Ebira, Horror of the Deep. Got it. Uh, it was uh, nine, is kind of an earlier Godzilla film. It was made in 1966. I think it was the fifth Godzilla feature. Uh, I, have to... I don't actually know. I can look that up. You, you keep talking. I'll look that up. Yeah. I can, I can, um, that's pretty easy to look up. It's, it's somewhere between seventh. five and seven. Okay, it was seventh. Seventh, which, which for Godzilla is still pretty fucking early. There's so many Godzilla <laughs> I know movies. it's like seven feature films, but there's like, oh, like I'll push it on 40 at this point. Uh, but yeah, this one wasn't made by uh, Ishiro Honda. It was made by Jun Fukuda. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, Godzilla is on this island. And it's about uh, uh, people who trek to this island for various reasons. They, they, the reasons change depending on the version you've seen. Uh, the one I saw, uh, I think it was treasure left after a war no it was uh people like, like a bank thief was on the run and mm. they crash landed on this island where uh it may be people... confusing with godzilla versus the smog yeah. monster 
where uh, a group of people were keeping Ebera, this gigantic um, lobster creature, at bay. And it was keeping all of the island natives in line. Mm. And uh, Godzilla had to come and meet out some justice. Got it's it. Early Godzilla films, like that entire Showa era, is just such a delight. Even the crappy ones are fun to watch. I didn't choose Godzilla vs. Megalon because that movie's just really stupid. Uh, Unlike most Godzilla movies. Well, <laughs> some of them are smart and sophisticated. Oh, some well, of them are, no, to... a few of them are. A, f- a few Godzilla a few movies are actually pretty sophisticated. Poignancy, the but... original Godzilla, I maintain, is a dead serious, totally effective monster movie. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a legitimately classic, great horror movie. Belongs in the upper echelon ranks, but very quickly the franchise got silly. Yeah, well, by the time they got to uh, King Kong, mm-hmm. it was just let's just have some fun with these monsters. Sure. It's been kind of that way ever since, and and occasionally they'll reboot it, like Godzilla 1985. They'll try, or, or, aka uh, Return of Godzilla. They. Yeah tried to bring the original tone back and they they do that every few decades shin godzilla was kind of like that what if godzilla emerged now with politics the way they are how would that play that's a great movie by the way shin godzilla is really good there's the uh the showa era the heisei era the uh, millennium era and now the chin era Mm -hmm. and then there's some american films that we don't need to talk about Uh, i love i love how much of a godzilla purist you are (laughs) I haven't seen most Godzilla movies, actually. It's actually, I, I won't call it a blind spot, but, like, I've just never sat, I've never gotten so into Godzilla that I wanted to sit down and watch all of them. So I just kind of piecemeal. I'll just see one here and there. Uh, they're, they're, they're kind of like a, a drug after a while. It's like, yeah. I could do another thing. Well, and this, and this one in particular, I just found it, when I see a Godzilla movie, I want to see Godzilla stuff, or at least other monster stuff. I want mm. kaiju, kaiju's the Japanese the giant monster genre. Mm. Um, I want kaiju doing kaiju stuff. The more people doing people stuff, the worse the kaiju movie, generally. I think this is. Mm. A, I think a lot of people um, lobbed this critique at Gareth Edwards' Godzilla movie. It's like where it's all about Aaron Taylor Johnson... And and uh, Elizabeth Olsen, mm-hmm. and then occasionally we cut back to the monster, and I'm like, yeah, it ends cool, but it was, took so long to get there. Yeah, yeah. And like they, I, they, I didn't even mind that much that time, but it's not quite what we were promised. They, they obfuscated for way too. It's like that yeah. that fight should have happened like right at the 60 minute yeah. mark, which is one of the reasons I'm pretty kind to Godzilla King of the Monsters, the most recent one, because say what you will, there's a lot of they, giant they, monster at they, shit. At least they did a lot of monsters. There's stuff. a lot. But this one has people waking up a sleeping Godzilla with a lightning rod. Yeah. They like stab it into to Godzilla and lightning strikes him and shocks him back to life. He gets to blast planes out of the sky uh, he gets to uh, kill a gigantic condor. Mothra is in the movie. Doesn't uh-huh. do a lot, but Mothra, is, she, she's in the movie. Great. And uh, so it's, again, it's not one of the best Godzilla movies, mm-hmm. but I'm glad they had a good Godzilla well, movie on well, Mystery Science Theater. What makes, what makes this one, a, I mean, you mentioned some cool stuff, the lightning rod or Mothra or whatever mm-hmm. like that, but like beyond just having some trappings of the, of the Godzilla franchise, mm-hmm. what makes this a good Godzilla movie? Well, the the better Godzilla movies, especially from like the sixties and seventies, yeah, were what you were talking about with the magic sword. They feel like uh, something very, not just kid friendly, uh, but something that a kid would invent. Mm. That there is something very uh, pure about 
the childish nature of these Godzilla stories. Uh, I think a lot of childhood genre stuff that I grew up with was informed by things that leaked in from Godzilla movies. These very simple solutions. Godzilla's asleep. Well, what do we do? We strike him with lightning. And what does he do? He kills a bird. Okay, and then what does he do? There's a big lobster. And what does he do? He throws a rock at it. And what happens then? The lobster hits the rock back. <laughs> and then Godzilla catches it. No, he hits it with his tail. And they play, hit it back and forth for a while. And then Godzilla breathes nuclear fire on it. It's... <laughs> That's how Godzilla film, like early Godzilla films, make me feel. Fair enough. They, they make me feel like I'm eight and in a very positive way. Awesome. Mm. Well, uh, all right. Uh, well, let's 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 follow this thread, shall we? You, uh, we, I did a big thing. Mm. You did a big thing. Then then I did a special effects thing, and you did another big thing. Let's get really tiny. Okay. <laughs> let's get like really small. Let's do a movie about super intelligent killer ants. (laughs) I'm glad you put this on the list. Yeah, I debated whether or not the KTMA era of Mystery Science Theater 3000 was fair game. And finally I said, fuck it. Because, again, these are episodes, the early public access, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, what do you you call it? UHF Mm -hmm. episodes of MST3K. They're very rarely shown. They kind of only exist in bootlegs. Um, and so, like, are they official? Uh, they are. One of the films that they showed in that first season, and they and they redid a lot of those actual movies, like, on Comedy Central. Like, they did, like, yeah. a lot of the Gamera movies in their initial run, and then they did them again, and they did them bigger and ostensibly better. I actually haven't mm-hmm. seen all of the originals. Um, but one film that they did early on that they ended up never doing again was a film called Phase 4, uh, which is a sci-fi horror movie Directed by Saul Bass. If you don't know the name Saul Bass, you are in for a treat because yeah. look him up. You well, you know who he is. You know his work. You know his, you um, know his work, whether you realize it or not. Have you seen uh, the American Airlines logo? Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Der Wiener Schnitzel logo? Have you mm-hmm. seen the Post Office logo? Have you seen the United Way logo? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Girl Scouts logo. The Girl Scouts logo. Um, Have you seen a Dixie Cup? He designed, he was a graphic designer who did a lot of some of the most iconic, recognizable graphic design for various corporations in the 20th century. In the film industry, he was also responsible for many of the greatest opening credit sequences. Mm. Ever produced like Psycho and Vertigo and others as well, and Men with the Golden Arm. Yeah, he directed one movie. <laughs> he, I don't know why this was his. Pa- I don't know if it was a passion project or what. I don't know the full story behind it. Someone is already tweeting me. Bless you. That's not my point. He made one movie as a director, and it's fucking weird. Because it is about a scientific installation in the middle of the desert, and they have discovered that ants have, as a collective, as like a shared consciousness, grown super intelligent. And they've decided to run things. Now, in your head, you might think this is getting into like a silly Simpsons Trios of Horror territory where like some ant is going to be like wearing a crown and like yelling at people with like a stick or whatever. Like, no, 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 no. 
Frankly, I'm not even sure the movie is 100% confident how the ants are going to take over, but it's 100% convinced that they are. And so the movie follows a, a group of scientists and like one survivor of an ant attack uh, as they basically hunker down in their bunker, try to solve the mystery of how the ants are growing super intelligent and lose their goddamn minds. It is conveyed in an almost abstract way a lot of the time. There's a lot of like really close up, like tell like I don't know what kind of lens you use, but some like real close up lens to like really get in there with the ants. Mm. But there's also just a lot of abstract color and it's so fucking weird. And I'm sorry, we got robbed of a cinematic directorial career from Saul Bass. Because if this is if he brought this fucking 2001 A Space Odyssey energy to a movie about killer ants, imagine what he could have done with literally any plot. <laughs> I would seriously, I don't I would love to see him do a romantic comedy like this. I would love to see him do a mystery movie. I would love to see him do a um I don't know, an Orville Redenbacher biopic. I don't care. I want to see what Saul Bass could have done because this movie which I'll be perfectly frank is a little on the dull side. Like I, <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's not it's eventful more of a nature documentary. Yeah. Than it is a thriller. It's contemplative in a very unexpected way. And sometimes it forgets to be a thriller, hmm. but I would, I would argue that it's not so much slow as it is weirdly hypnotic. And I dig it. It's, I don't, as a kind of movie, I don't always know who to recommend it to because a lot of people are just <laughs> well, going to go, what the fuck was that? If, if you really liked Beyond the Black Rainbow, yes. then boy, how do you like phase four? Yeah, it's that kind of abstract, weird, almost for the sake of being weird, uh, a sci fi movie that, um, yeah, they just, um, they don't make those and they very rarely make them good. And this is definitely like one of the most noteworthy weirdo, um, mm. more artistically ambitious movies okay. that I think MST3K ever covered. Like whether you think it's good or bad, and it's a perfectly good argument to say that ultimately it doesn't work. I yeah. totally respect that. I'm not going to fight you too hard on that. But no one's going to say that Saul Bass didn't bring it. <laughs> Saul Bass did, made the yeah, most out did, of it. Did have a lot of personality. He, he didn't just get two people in front of a camera and had them do dialogue. He tried to make this the most absolute mind blowing, super intelligent little ant movie he could. Hmm. And I can't imagine anyone doing better. Hmm. What's your next pick? Um, well, mine also has insects. Okay. So the, the, it, well, it has creatures that are very similar to Earth insects, larger, of course. Uh, <laughs> this is on my list. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, it's This Island Earth, uh, which was the subject of Mystery Science Theater 2000, the movie. Uh, rather curiously, uh, they made a feature film of Mystery Science Theater. Glad they did. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's cool to see. Uh, At the time, they never showed movies in widescreen. It was yeah. always pan and scan because that's what TVs were typically sized mm -hmm. for. So it was cool to see. It was like the first time you could see an MST3K movie in widescreen. And This Island Earth was a very widescreen movie. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was big, epic, ambitious, and it was colorful, and they had a really good print of it. And that was really novel at the time. Well, it, it wasn't uh, actually super widescreen because 
It came. I mean, out it wasn't. 19... Ci- it wasn't CinemaScope. But yeah, it was. It was, it was it came was out pretty in, good uh, widescreen ni- though. It came out in 1955. Yeah, which was just after the inception of CinemaScope, so actually wasn't so common yet. Mm-hmm. But films were moving to the wider, so it was actually uh, 185. Mm. Uh, which, which, if you watch a lot of MST3K, feels really wide. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they they actually did it this way, and this is uh, sort of a feels like in the tradition of a lot of 1950s science fiction movies, the sort of bold technicolor thing with creatures and aliens, mm-hmm. maybe in the same vein as uh, Forbidden Planet. It has a similar mm-hmm. vibe, even though Forbidden Planet is takes place off world and it, space place. It's actually Earth. like kind of halfway between Forbidden Planet. And uh, the day the Earth stood still, because mm-hmm. in addition to having you know big way out you know cool alien you know matte painting landscapes and monsters in it, it also has this sort of this message this of like human philosophical yeah, idea of human of destiny the and yeah. yeah, and how like science needs to like protect us from ourselves and mm-hmm. it's a frankly as the movie depicts it, it's a load of hooey, but it's it's still fun. <laughs> and the story of the movie is a, a scientist slash pilot, his plane gets taken over by a green ray. Yeah. Scientist slash happens. pilot. Yeah, I like both that. Of those it's, it's very buckaroo bonsai yeah. of them. And uh, he uh, receives this mysterious instruction book and a bunch of parts and he puts together something called an interocitor. And he's able to contact this uh, guy with a big head who's clearly an alien, but he's not an alien. <laughs> like, the, the they, characters are supposed to not notice that they have these gigantic heads. These gigantic, like, Klingon foreheads, and they just never talk about it. It would be rude. Yeah, I guess so. Don't, don't mention his head. And you should also mention, of course, that when he meets this uh, alien who's come to Earth for mysterious purposes, the audience is a little ahead of everybody. Uh, he's he's in like a house with a bunch of other scientists, including one of the greatest professors of the mid twentieth century. The professor, the professor <laughs> from Gilligan's Island, is in this movie uh, as a professor. Typecasting is a thing. <laughs> Typecasting <laughs> this, is a perfectly is, valid thing. Well, uh, this was long before Gilligan's Island, and uh, yeah. um, re- uh, what's his name, um, Russell Johnson. Yeah. Uh, he had a, a nice little tidy B movie career before he started on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, I've seen him in actually a bunch of movies. He's in, I think he's also in um, uh, It Conquered the World. Oh, is he in that? I, I think Russell Johnson's in that one too. See, I, I, I have to look it up. That almost made my list. Yeah, well, <laughs> I like I like I like the premise of that movie, but I can't pretend I, it's well executed. I, I, I like Beverly Garland in that movie. I'll say that Beverly Garland is my fucking hero, and you better fucking believe there's a Beverly Garland film in my list. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Uh, Beverly Garland's not in this island Earth, and but this island Earth, kind of... and frankly, Beverly Garland isn't in it is one of the great tragedies of anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it came from outer space. Uh, I think I think of it came from outer space. That had Russell Johnson. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I he he wasn't mixed in it. Up in my head, I yeah. guess. Very similar titles. Uh, and I've seen that one too. I saw it in 3D, in fact. Oh, that's uh, cool. On on the big screen. And the first time I saw it was Anaglyph with 3D glasses. Hmm. Oh, but yeah, in this one, the aliens uh, have a, a plan of some kind, and our hero, Cal Meacham, is sneaking around trying to find out what's going on. He meets an old flame of his, or is she? Uh, she doc- doesn't remember him. Yeah, Dr. Like, we Ruth dated Adams. before. She's like, I don't know you. And he's like, the hell? Which which adds nothing to the movie. It's no, just it's, this weird little social moment. It just, it just makes his, like, arrival at this mm-hmm. weird scientist enclave run by aliens seem a little more mysterious. 
But and she, she justifies it like, oh, I didn't want you to, I didn't want them to know how close we were in case that became like uh, something that would be our undoing or whatever. Because they're convinced that the aliens are something bad, but they're not actually. The aliens are looking to humanity to save their own planet from destruction because they made all the mistakes that they see humanity about to make. They're, they've doomed themselves. Yeah, there's, there's a, yeah, a, a, a they're facing in the direction of poignancy, and they're, yeah. they're about to take a step forward, but they're not quite there. And they yet. take a big old step back, a bunch of silliness. Uh, but I, I love the design in this movie. Oh, it looks like cool. prime 1950s, uh, just bold science fiction design with the big flying saucers, mm. and of course the iconic mutant, which mm. is a giant insect man, like a bipedal insect person with long pincer arms mm. and a gigantic brain. It makes no evolutionary sense. It wouldn't well, even they, make they sense. Were, to, they were genetically modified. I'm, and it makes no sense to genetically modify them that way. I was about to say, <laughs> nothing about them makes sense, but they look cool. They look cool. They look really, really, really cool. Everything about the actual alien stuff in this movie looks cool. It's got mm. that great stark, like, over-designed aesthetic, but, like, there's no clutter. Like, no one actually lives on these ships. They, like, visit them like a museum or something. <laughs> Our chair technology is light years ahead of yours. Yeah. Um, the normal view gag on MST3K. <laughs> it's, I don't even, I couldn't even, I would struggle to even explain the joke. But it's maybe the most consistently funny, every time I watch it, it kills me joke in MST3K history. I don't know why it's, it's the best. Um, yeah, this is another one where it's not so much bad as it is corny. Yeah, it's really corny. It's really sincere. No one, except for like the people who are responsible for like the matte paintings and the monsters, no one's really doing their best work here. <laughs> you know, no one's really making well, was, the most was, incredible it, movie you've ever seen. It was co-directed uh, by Jack Arnold, who did <laughs> some other mystery science theater films, but just a lot of notable '50s sci-fi movies, like It Came from Outer Space mm -hmm. and like Creature from the Black Lagoon. And The yeah. Incredible Shrinking Man. He actually did some, which is a legitimately great film. That's an amazing motion picture. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the other director was Joseph M. Newman, uh, who was actually nominated for two Academy Awards in the category of Best Assistant Director. Back which, when that was a thing, I Which guess. was very briefly a thing in the 30s. He was the assistant director on David Copperfield, which is a very respectable David Copperfield, and San Francisco, which is one of the big epic... Uh, disaster movies of the 30s back mm -hmm. when that was briefly uh, a zeitgeist um so these people had really really good work and this is a very fun movie i'm not spitting on this movie just not their best <laughs> no. but it's certainly a fun and mm -hmm. i i think it's kind of cool i think it was a good choice for the motion picture of mst3k because it's just kind of fun to see that on a big screen anyway and yeah, like it's it's in it's color. It's just really colorful. Yeah. It, it's a science fiction movie, which I think was very important. They could have like a biker movie for mystery science theater on the big screen. Yeah, it wouldn't it? Yeah, or like if they if they imagine if like oh we're gonna do the mystery science theater three thousand the movie, and it's like Killer Shrews, which is like an ugly looking movie. <laughs> it's just horrendous a, low budget film. Yeah, yeah this, this you're not gonna get the most like, out of that. It's it's like a decent Hollywood production. It's it's corny as hell, but yeah. it's a decent Hollywood production. So yeah, it was an excellent choice. All right. Well, uh, you know, you set me up, so I'm just gonna knock it down. All right. Uh, I am gonna pick the Beverly Garland film, and I had trouble picking a Beverly Garland film. <laughs> I could have picked a lot of Beverly Garland films. Uh, she's really great in It Conquered the World. 
uh, movie, which is not great, but I really do like the premise. Uh, Lee Van Cleef is a scientist who discovers life on Venus, and he conspires with the Venusians to conquer the planet and successfully does so. They send out these little bat monsters that take over everyone's minds, and Lee Van Cleef is now in this weird place where he has no one to gloat over. So there's like one scientist and like his own wife who he like allows to remain like uncontrolled by the aliens. And of course they conspire to save the world. And his, I think his wife is Beverly Garland. And I, uh, she's so fucking good. She takes <laughs> she, no one's shit. She's amazing. It, it's a pity that she was never like an A movie star. I know she, she could have done like, it. She's an A movie star who has only ever starred in B movies. Yeah. But she, look up Beverly Garland's she's, career. She's, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. And she was, she elevated everything she was ever in. She did a movie, which is just too scuzzy to quite qualify called swamp diamonds, yeah. which is about a prison break. And she's like an undercover cop in this prison break. And they, they're working their way through the swamp and they kidnap a hunky dude. And Oh, which one of them will take the hunky dude for their own. And um, it's it's a really sleazy film actually. With a few twists It's a Russ Meyer film Yeah very much so. And Russ Meyer would have done A much better job of it Yeah But the movie she's in Which is a little inept In some of its technical aspects But otherwise is actually A pretty good movie Is Gunslinger <laughs> Gunslinger uh, is a pretty cool Proto-feminist western uh, mm. That is It's too cheap That's for sure mm. Uh, there's some embarrassing like gaffes in the production. Like there's a bit People where someone want... forgot to cue horses. Yeah, so they're like sit- sitting still, and the camera is looking right at the horses, and then they start walking. Yeah. Uh, so, there's yeah. a, like really sloppy things, like uh, actors who can't stay in the reflector light. So you see this big beam mm. light bouncing all over them. You see camera shadows and boom mics. It's pretty pretty shabby. It's pretty shabby, but and that's a, more the pity because I feel like with a little bit more time and money, this could have been a very respectable. Feminist Western. Well, it has a great premise. Yeah. And it has a great lead actress. And in this case, that's all you kind of need to yeah. make it watchable. Beverly Garland. It's a gift to Beverly Garland, basically. It mm-hmm. seems like it, I would, I wouldn't be shocked to find out it was written for her. Um, but uh, the idea of the gunslinger or, or just gunslinger uh, is uh, there's a town in the old West and, uh, you know, trains going to run through the town. Everyone's like conspiring to make the most of that standard Western storyline. Um, and uh, the sheriff in town is, in the very first scene, murdered by the various goons mm. uh, in the employ of uh, the villain is a woman. She runs the local brothel. Um, he's murdered. Beverly Garland immediately grabs his rifle and starts firing back at them and kills a bunch of them. Misses one. So the next day when they're having the funeral, she recognizes one of them and in the middle of the funeral guns him down. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a fucking badass And they're just like Okay well we're waiting For the next sheriff To arrive from Wherever sheriffs come from Won't be here for a week and But, but we got all this Law and unorder In our town And Beverly Gone's like Fuck it I'll do it Like aren't you a woman Did, <laughs> did you see what I just Fucking did <laughs> Yeah I'll fucking do it And so she fucking does it And she's a fucking champion And she stands up to the bad guys And then so the bad guys decide to bring in Like a badass uh, uh, Gunslinger uh, Played by uh, It's John Ireland right If memory says John Ireland Who's a pretty respectable actor actually And um, John Ireland of course uh, Meets her Before uh, He finds out that he's here to kill her And immediately falls for her Because she's Beverly fucking Garland And she's amazing (laughs) 
And so now he's in a complete bind because he's got a job to do and he refuses to do it. Also, I remember he serves like the mayor of the town, like betrayed his regiment in the Civil War. So he's out for revenge too. And if he kills that guy, Beverly Garland's also got to take him in. So even if he doesn't kill Beverly Garland, their relationship is probably doomed. There's some good melodrama here. There's some rock solid, just built into the plot, solid Western melodrama. And Beverly Garland is so goddamn captivating that the incompetence of some of the production, just it was obviously fast. It was obviously cheap. Mm-hmm. She made this the same year as it conquered the world. Too. Yeah. She was so fucking good that she made this, like, which clearly it's trying to be a bad movie. And she made it, I think, a pretty good movie. Okay. You, you, you gotta gloss over some of the some of the production flaws. But, like, seriously, like... This is an outwardly feminist Western. Like, it's actually trying Mm. to break the mold of what Westerns are and give Mm. more roles and give stronger roles for both hero and villain Mm. to women. And you see this, there were some films that were trying to do this. You look at this, a great Barbara Stanwyck film called 40 Guns, which is awesome and needs like a Criterion edition. Um, But there weren't enough of this. And it's really cool to see it. And this is like Beverly Garland's best lead role that I've ever seen. And it's neat. And yeah, it's a fun episode too. There's a lot of good riffing to be had here, but Mm -hmm. this is one of the ones where I get wrapped up in the movie. I like the movie. (laughs) They didn't do a lot of Westerns either. So it also stands out. It's uh, Beverly Garland is so good in this film that she actually kind of highlights how bad it is overall. I think kind of like it's too much of a contrast almost. Yeah. Like if, if you had just, somebody was sleepwalking through that role, it would just be just even. And you might just say, okay, well, this is, I see what you're going for, but that was just a bad flick. Uh, here you're, you're saying this is a tremendously bad flick with one great performance right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And but luckily, luckily she's the lead. It's not like she has a few scenes. She's carrying this whole thing. But again, the, the, the badness of the movie Mm. is a production issue more than anything else. Yeah. The cast is hit or miss. Mostly hit, I think. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think it's a little ahead of its time. I think it's, you know, a decent story. Mm. Scripts, dialogue, okay. Story, good. Yeah. Like, there's a good baseline here. They used to give an Academy Award for that. Yeah, just the story. Just, just the, story. the idea and the series of events that transpire kind of a weird choice actually if you think about it but um but yeah it's actually it's a, it's pretty good and uh, they apparently they shot it in six fucking days <laughs> which i just found out now as i looked it up to make sure i got john ireland's name right uh that's fucking hilarious um but anyway yeah gunslinger with a lot of respect for it what's your next right. pick um i'm gonna go uh we can just skim past this one pretty quickly because we talked about it kind of recently on our episode zero podcast ah, i was gonna mention this one uh, too yeah but I'm, I'm gonna go with hercules unchained Oh, I'm actually going to go with Hercules. Okay, we can talk about them both. We'll do them both. Uh, okay, fair enough. We recently did an episode zero episode for uh, the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and how uh, there was a line of dialogue in the Rocky Horror Picture Show where uh, Frankenfurter talks about taking in an old Steve Reeves movie. Mm-hmm. And that might seem a little like an odd reference. And we uh, detailed how these uh, sword and sandal films, also known as peplum films, really were... Uh, at, at the time, like in the 1950s when these things were being made, kind of uh, the only place you could get gay erotica, essentially. Because mm-hmm. it was a lot of shirtless, greasy guys hanging out and doing bro stuff. Yeah, there was a lot and of queer was a, subtext, yeah. sometimes just text. 
yeah. in, in, in these ones with Steve Reeves, it was more subtext, but mm-hmm. yeah, eventually it became a little bit more textually obvious. Yeah. Like they didn't, they didn't uh, come out and like mm-hmm. actually just have relationships and like talk about it openly, but it's also pretty clear that there's, they're doing some of this intentionally sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think Hercules Unchained is just, it's the, like the Conan, the destroyer to Hercules, Conan, the barbarian. That's a very good way of putting it. Which, uh, I actually like Conan the Destroyer more just because it's so silly. <laughs> so many I, people I hate how, that movie and I don't know why. I don't know why. It is so, such a blast. I mean, I get because liking so, Conan the Barbarian more because it's like a classier, bigger production. It takes itself more seriously. But Classy. I mean, Conan the Destroyer, is, it's, it's the matinee version. It's fun. <laughs> I like that. I don't see everyone's fucking problem. One of them has Grace Jones and it's not the original Conan. Boom. Conan the Destroyer is, is, has validity. Come on. <laughs> I like Conan Destroyer. I, like Conan I, Destroyer. I don't prefer and, it, but and, I like and, it a lot. And I like and I like Hercules Unchained. It's it's a little a little sillier, a little broader. I think there's a lot more incident in Hercules Unchained, uh, and it I think it also hammers home a lot of the more interesting gay subtext mm. because one of the big plot points is oh no the women are keeping the men from doing of uh, doing man things together. Yeah, like grunting and straining and sitting really close and getting their sweat on one another. Yeah. The the great tragedy, like the horror that befalls Hercules is oh no, he might have, have he might have to have sex with all these women. Hmm. And granted they like stole his memory and stuff. It's actually like really gross and manipulative, but at the same time but the movie doesn't play it like that. The movie plays it like the great tragedy is oh no, women are distracting men from their shirtless duties. Yeah. And yeah, Hercules Unchained, I think, makes that more overt than the original Hercules. But I like the original Hercules movie a little bit more. It's telling a story that's actually a bit more ripped from Greek myth. It's yeah, It recenters it around Hercules rather than uh, Perseus, right. but um, or, or sorry, rather than Jason, uh, because they're basically doing Jason and the Argonauts from Herc's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty respectable. I mean, the monster, the, the Hydra protecting the Golden Fleece looks awful. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's a really bad monster by any measure. Even at the time, that was bad. But, like, setting that aside, it's a very respectable, you know, brawny adventure. You actually get some, like, attempt at depth of character for Hercules as he acknowledges that his powers have set him apart from mortal man. And he goes through this whole Superman two thing where he like visits an Oracle and a fortress of solitude and decides to give up some of his powers to be more human. And, um, I I feel like that one actually pretty much works as a film. And I, we talked about this great length in episode zero and we can't just kind of leave it here. The Hercules movies and indeed that whole peplum subgenre is, tragically ignored it's a kind of an important chapter in film history a lot of these movies were blockbusters hercules was a hit oh yeah hercules was a big hit hercules had like a mass wide release like about 15 years before jaws popularized that it was kind of ahead of its time Mm -hmm. um Hercules was influential. The Marvel Comics version of Hercules is very explicitly based on the Steve Reeves version of the character. And you can absolutely see the way that Hercules adapts uh, Greek mythology into basically a a modern superhero mold. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a real tragedy that these movies haven't been better taken care of. I think someone informed me that there are like versions in Europe that have been cleaned up, but these movies have not been released in America in like widescreen cleaned up versions. And someone they, needs to they, do they that. Oughta. They ought to. They ought to. Vinegar Syndrome, Arrow Video, mm. Shout Factory. At least the first two. Hercules and Hercules Unchained. Deserve the treatment. The better known, thanks to Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. Maybe you have the... I'm, 
Shot Factory put out Mr. Science Theater. Yeah. Maybe they have some kind of backward way of getting the rights it would to the be originals. Nice. It would be nice to do it. Uh, Her- uh, MST3K did a few other Hercules movies. They're not as good. Uh, Hercules versus the Moon Men. It's a pretty bad film. It's Hercules against the Moon Men. Apologies. <laughs> yeah, Herc is against any old Moon Men. Uh, and then he did... That, what was that, it? that one's really entertaining, but yeah. it is incredibly bad. They did Hercules and the Captive Women, which has the worst Hercules I've ever seen. <laughs> He's just so, so not in the right movie. He's they hilarious. A, they also did at least one Machiste movie, which is a oh, yeah, yeah. Hercules-like character. They did a few other Papillon films, and they did um, Hercules... What was it? Hercules and his Lovers. They did one in the Netflix run. Oh, I, I didn't watch yeah. that one yet. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I watched it once, and I kind of for, I kind of forgot the details right. of it because I did, like, a whole marathon. So I, I owe that one a rewatch. I don't really right. recall that one too deeply. But, yeah, the two Hercules movies are great. Right. What's your next one? Uh, we're getting into some pretty good uh, some pretty good ones here. I'm going to go for Ted V. Michael's riff on Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and that is The Girl in Gold Boots. Um, oh, I don't even remember this one. You don't know this one? I oh, feel yeah. like I saw this one, but I think I saw it when it first came out, and I haven't seen it uh, since. Ted V. Michaels is another one of those B-movie auteurs who did films like The Doll Squad and The Astro Zombies and Blood Orgy of the She-Devils. Blood Orgy of the She-Devils is rated PG, uh, <laughs> by the way. That's hilarious. Uh, he was a, uh, an assistant director on Ed Wood's Orgy of the Dead. You know, He, oh. he was, a, he was a, a stunt guy for a long time. Uh, he directed a film called The Corpse Grinders, which is just really, really awful. Uh, some of the greatest titles, uh, Children Shouldn't Play Oh, with Corpse dead Grinders things. is weird. Corpse Grinders, the plot of Corpse Grinders is mm. someone has been putting human meat in cat food, so now cats are attacking their human masters because they know that human meat tastes good. <laughs> yeah. The Corpse Grinders. The Corpse Grinders. <laughs> but he also did uh, Girl in Gold Boots. Uh, okay. he, uh, oh, he also did uh, uh, Catalina Caper, which is another... Uh, oh, Catalina Mr. Caper's... Mr. Sense Theater movie. Catalina Caper's kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, this was uh, a uh, sort of go-go dancing movie, but mm. also like a, a fallen youth narrative. It's about <sighs> a young girl and two of her buddies go off to the big city, go off to Hollywood, and she becomes... a. A go-go dancer in a club and ends up falling into uh, the underworld of drug dealing and crime. Uh, there's a character in it named Critter who gets a job as a janitor, and <laughs> Buzz becomes the drug dealer. Uh, and yeah, it's it's one of those wonderful uh, takes the mold from like 1930s scare films about how you know the dangers of the big city and how horrible. Uh, nightlife really is but the problem with the movie is the nightlife looks really fucking fun it's <laughs> like there's just a lot of high energy music and the design is really gaudy and glitzy and wonderful like it, there's nothing really unpleasant about girl in the gold girl in gold boots okay i think it's actually just really a blast to watch okay i feel the same way about beyond the valley of the dolls it's like oh no they're falling down into this world of fun having a lot of sex <laughs> and <laughs> Having more sex and taking drugs and going to parties. This is great. I want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah. I I like Girl Girl in Gold Boots. It's one of the few that I actually sought out without the commentary. Like Mm. I wanted to see the movie by itself and I I did end up finding it. And and yeah, it's it's just really entertaining. All right. Um, I wish I I had something to contribute on this Um, one. Critters played by Jody Daniels. Uh, the yeah. main characters played by Leslie McRae. Uh, no, no, not, no not, one you would have known. No about. one. No one you'd know. Yeah. No one you'd know. Yeah, it's just it's just not like a prominent film mm. by any stretch of the imagination. 
And frankly, I, I, I honestly, now that you talk about it, I'm not 100% sure I did see this episode. Oh, okay. Well, I, I yeah. highly recommend it. Okay, I, I guess the, I got the, it. The, the episode and the movie. You can watch either. Okay, well noted. All right. All right, well, I guess we'll just move on. Uh, all right. Uh, okay, we only got four left here. So I got one, two, three. I got four. Yeah, I got four as well. Okay. All right. All right, I'm going to go with one that you and I... I don't know if this is famous or not, but it's famous to you and me. You and I famously defended to Joel Hodgson's face. <laughs> and he, he defied us. This we, is on my list as we, well. We, we I, said, I we said, we said you picked this film for MST3K, and we happen to think this is actually a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. And Joel Hodgson was just like, no, you don't. Really? <laughs> no, this is... this No, this have you actually watched it recently? It's not good. And we're like, yeah, we did watch it recently, and we liked it. And he's like... Uh, and that is the pretty shameless Star Wars knockoff, Star Crash. With Christopher Plummer. Yeah. And Carolyn and, Monroe and, and uh, Marjo Gortner. Yeah. And uh, uh, Marjo Gortner, like a legit uh, televangelist. Oh, yeah. He was he was actually like a child televangelist. And he would like heal people. And then like as an adult, he revealed, yeah, all of that was a sham. And there was oh. a big uh, uh, a great documentary about it. Called Marjo. Yeah. Uh, and then he had like a, a, a small but noteworthy acting career. Uh, and uh, and also, of course, David Hasselhoff and the great Joe Spinell from Maniac. Um, pretty cool B-movie cast, actually. Uh, Carolyn Monroe stars as... Um, oh, what's her name? Stella Starr. This incredibly like sensual Barbarella-type mm-hmm. hero uh, who she's is... A, she's a pilot. She's a pilot. She's a smuggler. She's arrested by space police, uh, including like... A robot, like, like, uh, uh, what's the name of the, uh, what's the name of, like, a robot boss hog. Like a robot, <laughs> like, just, just like a robot, like, uh, uh, like, deep south kind of sheriff, like, straight yeah. out of Smokey and the Bandit. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, they are offered an assignment in order to get their freedom, and they have to fight, like, giant robots and stuff, and it turns out Marjo Gortner is some kind of weird alien with Jedi powers who can make a lightsaber just for fun. Like... They have, like, legit lightsabers in this movie. Like, they they rip off Star Wars shamelessly. shamelessly. There was a period right after Star Wars in which there were a lot of knockoffs of Star Wars, and that's true for any big movie. Hmm. Any big movie, any movie, especially if it's like kind of novel and hadn't been done in a while or hadn't been done before, you immediately people try to rip it off. And sometimes it's small ways, sometimes it's just like superficial ways. Like right after The Matrix came out, we started getting stuff like Underworld, which is like, hey, what if The Matrix but vampires? You know, we're all going to wear like shiny black vinyl and they're going to kick ass in slow-mo. Mm-hmm. But instead of having some high-minded thing about computers, they're just vampires. Okay, but that's totally a movie that came out in the wake of The Matrix. In the wake of Star Wars, we didn't get, like, Indiana Jones right away. What we got were these Eurosleaze movies where a bunch of, like, Italian and... uh, uh, This one in particular is Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Films that basically took, like, oh, people like stuff that's in space now? Cool, we'll do that our own way. And, like, no, they wanted George Lucas's way. We'll do it our own way. And they did it their own way. And people weren't super into it. But boy, are they interesting. I love the way Star Crash looks. I love the way space looks in Star Crash. Every star is a different color. Like, it's, it's just unfettered they're, they're and completely untethered of, uh, from reality. It's gorgeous. There's, uh, 
I like the original Star Wars best of the Star Wars movies sure. because it still has like thumbprints on it, especially if you watch an early version before they started adding digital mm-hmm. stuff to Special it. Special editions, yeah. You know, there, there's a, a scene early in the movie where they're driving around in like this floating car, but they couldn't really work out the floating effect. Mm-hmm. So they clearly just like scratched on the film stock. I think it was a Vaseline re- smear. Yeah, they, they put like a smear they did. under it. Yeah. And it, you can see like thumbprints on it. It's just yeah. this big quivering smear. It I looked, liked it. I thought it looked fine. I, I think it looks pretty cool. I think they've erased it in later versions. Yeah, now it's just hovering. Yeah, just hovers cleanly. I don't like the cleanliness. I like the filth. And when I see a film like Star Crash, you can see a lot of people working very, very hard to make something look good and succeeding. If it looks effortless, it's less interesting to me. And Mm. I I feel like that's, you know, when you get into some of the Star Wars sequels. It looks sterile when you do it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I understand that's revolutionary and it takes a lot of hard work to get those visuals, but... I'm a lot more charmed by something like Star Crash, okay. uh, which is riding the line between Italian exploitation movie, shameless Star Wars knockoff, and some kind of special little thing of its own. Yeah. yeah. I, I really dig it a lot. It's slower than I think a lot of people would expect. A lot of people expect, like, a lot of mayhem. These, like, sort of cheesy knockoff films to be, like, just trying to grab your attention. And it's actually, yeah. like, kind of peaceful and contemplative sometimes. And, like... It's clearly they expect the people in the audience to be stoned, yeah. I think, and it plays to that. And if you're and if you are stoned, which I don't endorse, but if you are, you're going to get a lot more out of this movie. Um, but I dig it. I dig it. It's a it's a it's a psychedelic sci-fi movie with some actually again for the time pretty good visual effects. Um, a lot of like uh, uh, memorable like costume design and monster design and the action's kind of neat. I dig it. I think it's one of the better Star Wars knockouts. I think the best one, ironically, is Flash Gordon because Flash Gordon inspired Star Wars and the only reason they made Flash Gordon was because Star Wars was successful, even though George Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon in the first place, yada, yada, yada. But um, yeah, I think uh, besides Flash Gordon, I think this is the best Star Wars knockoff to come right after Star Wars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, in its own special way, it's more enjoyable than Star Wars. I'll say that, that might be a slight stretch for me. I, I'm not. I, did, I can't. I can't endorse that one, but uh, it's still pretty cool. Uh, if if I have a five year old, if if I'm gonna show him a movie like Star Wars or Star Crash, well, maybe maybe there's too much sex in Star Crash, but uh, it's it's not that. It's not. It's it's not Barbarella. It's not, it's it's not, not so body as that. No, uh, it's, it's it's there's there's some like scantily clad women, but mm. that's true for some Star Wars movies too. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh! Return of the Jedi ripped off Star Crash. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that I like Star Crash better than I like Return of the Jedi I'll say that with confidence I like it better than the prequels well I like a I think it, with a stick Star, better than the prequels I think sometimes it, like if you imagine like okay if you were ranking the Star Wars movies and people do that a lot like what if you took some of like the Star Wars knockoffs movies and just throw them in there how would they rank Flash Gordon would be in my top five Star Wars movies. <laughs> Flash Gordon is awesome. Star Crash would be at least in the top half of the best Star Wars movies. Okay. Ice Pirates would rank surprisingly high. Ice Pirates is really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, what's your next pick? Um, let's see. How can I segue to this one? Um, Star Wars is a tale of good and evil. Good fighting evil. Okay. And I have a film which is about... The purest deity of good. I have this on my list. Versus too. Satan. <laughs> I have this on my list. It's Rene Cardona's nineteen fifty nine film Santa Claus. Yeah, this one's uh, weird. Which uh, is this? It's about Santa Claus. 
But it's a Mexican film, and this was before a lot of uh, the story of Santa Claus had really been codified in the pop consciousness. Yeah. Uh, so because again, Santa could, Claus was like an is an actual like figure mm. in culture that got turned into in the 20th century, like with recently. Thanks largely to Coca-Cola, got turned into a pop icon with like his own kind of superhero mythos. Mm. That was pretty new, and it was still being like discovered throughout the 20th century. So when this movie, you're making your point, like when this movie came along, a lot of it wasn't like firm yet. Yeah, there was there was a lot of so room to was, play. So we. It seems bizarre to our modern eye, who has the superhero mythos of of Santa Claus in our minds, to see uh, this version of him. Now, Santa Claus is played by... uh, Imagine if Robert Englund (laughs) played Santa Claus. Oh. Because Santa Claus is played by a Mexican actor named Jose Elias Moreno, who's best known for playing, like, monsters and heavies in movies. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. uh, And so, yeah, he... So when he like is kind of leering at children, it has this kind of creepy murder vibe to it. But uh, Santa Claus lives uh, not on the North Pole, but above it mm. in a castle in the clouds, and he has representatives of from all over the world of young children who are work for him. Which is probably illegal, but that's probably why he lives like in like mm. international territory. <laughs> yeah, hey, guess what? Your accessories too. Um, <laughs> God. But uh, he has reindeer, but in this version, they are clockwork reindeer. They're like wind-up mechanical reindeer. And they're nightmare creatures. And, and this, yeah, <laughs> and they, so like, but they laugh with human voices, which is really bizarre. <laughs> and, and he does see you when you're sleeping due to his big uh, elaborate network of spy equipment that he has yeah. in his castle in A clouds. giant telescope with an eyeball at the end and a, a giant... giant uh, big creepy lips that talk to him. Yeah, and like a, and like a satellite <clears throat> dish that's a giant human ear. Hmm. I'm not sure if... I'm not sure <laughs> if this movie is good, but by God is it specific. It's, it's really... Spe- and... Uh, because he's so good and he wants to spread goodwill and actually spread messages of honesty and being good to young kids, why this pisses off Satan and he sends uh, Mephistopheles to Earth. And this Uh. is classic red pajamas, black horns, red face paint, Mm. like cartoon devil character who can teleport around. Yeah, and he's he's got powers. Like he can mm. like speak in people's minds without them knowing that he's there. You should steal it. He like tempts little kids to do bad things. Uh, The the devil in this one, his name is Pitch. Yeah. That's the the lesser devil Mm. deity. We found out he's one of many. Um, yeah, and so he's 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 got a responsibility to make as many kids naughty as possible and ruin Christmas. And so he's corrupt. We only see him take care of like three kids, but like he's trying to corrupt as many kids as possible. And Santa is trying to rescue kids from Satan's influence and solve all their problems, make the remind their parents that they love their kid. There's this one kid whose parents are such fucking asshats. They're just like they're like. I, out for dinner on Christmas Eve. They haven't taken their kid. They just expect him to stay home and practice his piano. And then Santa shows up as their waiter and it's just like, ah, oh, here's a magical drink that will make you remember the most important thing in your life, which you've probably forgotten. I'm like, I don't know what we could have possibly forgotten, honey. And then she's like, oh, right, we have a son. <laughs> Holy shit. What's he, like 10 now? Holy crap, we missed all of that. 
and uh, and there's of course poor Lupita. Oh, poor Lu- Lupita, Lupita, who is who is in- incredibly impoverished and is tempted to steal, but she's so honest she doesn't. Mm-hmm. But Santa sees that and gets her the doll anyway. Even the and and Santa apparently has been ignoring her the other seven years of her life. <laughs> All she ever wanted was a doll, and Santa, what, was she naughty those other seven years, Santa? Why are you and, only and, doing it now? What the and hell? The actress who plays Lupita, she's like five. She's just, oh, she's a, a, little a, kid. just a little kid, and there's a scene where this five-year-old is like, like clearly someone's like shouting direction to her from off camera. No, no, grab it, grab it, grab it. It's like, because she, she seems really afraid. She grabs the doll and starts to steal it, and then you hear the... I've, I've seen the English language dub. You're the yeah. English language narrator saying, No, Lupita! <laughs> like the it's narrator like, like the is getting really is like, invested yeah, in gets, this. Gets really, it's being ripped from her body as we see. <laughs> it's, it's so surreal. It's I, really I got, surreal. I got yeah. to see this on the big screen without wow. the Mystery Science Theater commentary. Oh, yeah. that's, it, that's this, amazing. This was back when the Cine Family was still in operation. Uh, run by Creeps, great programming. Um, and... Yeah, it was just it's such a, a dreamlike experience. It, it feels like a version of of Santa Claus that yeah you you'd sort of c- kind of conjure in your brain mm-hmm. after a night of binge drinking. Again, there's something to be said for movies that aren't like trapped mm. by what is common knowledge. It doesn't matter to the makers of Santa Claus what other people think Santa Claus was. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you watch like a superhero movie that's like made by someone who didn't read the comics and only cared about certain elements. Like like Like, Lee's Hulk. Or Catwoman or something where like... I I find those movies to be way more interesting. They're entertaining and they're kind of untethered by the self-seriousness that you'll find in a lot of the other adaptations. Are they good? Not necessarily. But they're... they're, they're Sorry, they're interesting. They're free. Santa Claus is like that. It's hypnotically odd. I'm mm. again. I'm not sure. I don't think words like "good" really apply to Santa Claus. I don't <laughs> think even. I don't think whether even. I don't think even if you like this movie, I don't know if "good's" the word to apply to it. But like, it's one of the oddest things that MST3K ever uncovered because this is another one where no one talked about this before MST3K found it. Yeah. And initially, everyone's like, "What the fuck." What a great episode of MST3K. And then sometime in the last, like, 10, 15 years, and I blame Alonzo Duralde for this. Well, Alonzo Duralde and Dave White, you can buy a commentary track they've done yeah. for Santa Claus. And you should. They're wonderful. They mm-hmm. uh, they do a podcast called Linoleum Knife. It's an incredible review podcast run by two incredible film critics. They have a great Patreon as well. Please check them out. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're not only good friends of ours, they're inspirations to us. They're really great. Uh, and uh, they have been promoting, unironically this movie for so long and i know they're not the only ones but in my head this is their fault uh and uh so yeah this is a cult film par excellence yeah all right yeah. uh so we got uh so we, we, both, got... we both did that yeah um, I'll, I'll i'll do the next one i'll right. do the next one because I, I i don't think this is going to be on your list i'm curious if it is um because we're going back to outer space and uh, this, however, well, is... Not, neither of my remaining films are from outer space, so... Well, then I win. Yeah. Uh, because we're talking about the really fun and creative, and as far as I'm concerned, 100% underappreciated, Moon Zero Two. Oh, you know, I don't know Moon Zero Two. You haven't seen Moon Zero Two? I don't think Two? I've seen this episode. This, so, you, would, yeah. you would like this movie. 
I'm not okay. talking about the episode. The episode is fine. Oh. It's from the first season when it was on uh, the Comedy Channel before it became Comedy Central. Okay. So and they didn't re-air these episodes a lot, but this was released on DVD, and I think you can see it. I think I think it's currently on one of like the streaming services. Uh, but Moon Zero Two was uh, marketed as the first outer space western. I don't think that's true, uh, but it might have been the first film marketed that way. Uh, Moon Zero Two, which has an amazing... An am- I would love to see that on a poster. The first film marketed as an... <laughs> Moon Zero Two has an, starts out great because it's got an amazing theme song. Like, it's super excited. Um, uh, I, I'm going to have to do this in a low register, but it's got more of like a Shirley Bassey quality. Mm. Moon Zero Two. <laughs> Ba-na-na-na-na-na. Moon Zero Two. It just really gets you excited to see Moon Zero Two. And the idea of Moon Zero Two is there's a space station on the moon. And people have started treating the moon like it was like the gold rush. Hmm. People are on the moon. People are like buying up parcels of land on the moon. And uh, there's a pilot who gets caught up in a big scheme to steal like precious jewel. You know, like they found that one like uh, comet or meteor or something where it's made out of a material and it's like worth like $500 trillion. Like that's how valuable the material on it is. Mm. Some guys found a way to like get that. And this, this whole scheme to like, I think it's in like crash into the moon or something like that. But um, the best parts of it are, Hanging out on the moon, where you get to like hang out in all these moon bars, and everyone's got their cool moon suits and all oh, these wait, cool I, moon I, dancers. I've seen this episode. Yeah, I, I don't remember the movie very well, so I can't comment on it. But yeah, yeah. I, now that you're describing the bar yeah. scene, yeah, I think I've seen seen this one before. Uh, this it's been is a while a, though. This is a British film. It was directed by Roy Ward Baker, who has directed a lot of really good genre films, uh, and this one is. I, it's not afraid to be kooky, which I think is great. It's always one second. It, it's always like one choice away from camp. Okay. And bless them for that. Uh, yeah, it's it's got a pretty good story. It's got a really wonderful design aesthetic. The music is really, really good. Um, the pacing is great. Um, I just unabashedly like this one. And it's a good episode two of MST3K. Like the riffing is fun. Uh, but Moon Zero Two deserves at least some cult cred on its own. Okay, I stand by it. I think it's a really underappreciated film, um, and I dig it. And I hope more people uh, give it a chance. It actually inspired um, Brian. Ful- what was it called? Oh, uh, Brian Fuller, the the executive producer of Hannibal. Mm-hmm. He also did Pushing Daisies. Um, he was one of the people behind Star Trek Discovery, but he left like after the first episode was done. Um, he produced a failed pilot for sci-fi that got released as like a sci-fi movie mm-hmm. that I've been meaning to cover for a while because it's it's heavily influenced by Moon Zero Two and its aesthetics. It's like 1960s sci-fi trappings, and it's all about people colonizing the moon. It was oh. called High Moon. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, it's, okay. it's terrible, but it's good. And that movie is that like movie slash failed pilot is really inventive and cool as well. So I highly recommend you track that down and make make it a double feature because they're really really fun. All right, uh, moving on. What's your number two? 
Uh, well, not my number two, just the next one I'm going to talk Well, your second to last I'm, one. I'm pretty sure that you're going to talk about this one, but it's a Mario Bava film. Oh, yeah, this oh, is my number one. Yeah, I, fig- <laughs> I figured it was, because I know you're a big fan of Danger Diabolic. Huge fan uh, of Danger oh, Diabolic. Stop me. that. Knocking things over you again. You do that every episode now. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to prop things up, and they keep falling over. Uh, Danger Diabolic is uh, based on a series of comics. Uh, it's a comic book movie mm-hmm. about... The world's best super thief. Yeah, it's actually he's actually a villain mm. by any traditional standard. Yeah, and he has a, he has a, a super villain outfit. It's the skin tight thing. And the movie is played by John Philip Law, who is Jude Law's father. who was also in Barbarella, mm-hmm. and, and he the, looks like Jude Law too. He like looks exactly he, like Jude. I wouldn't uncanny, mention that, but he actually. looks exactly like Jude Law. Yeah, and uh, he. Uh, goes about the world's creating shenanigans. Yeah. Stealing things and, and getting away with it because he's a gentleman thief. Yeah. Who actually strikes me as a good character, even though he's staged as the villain. Well, he, what he's, he is, we've been talking a lot on our Patreon podcast, Holy Batman, where we're reviewing every single episode of the 1960s Batman. We're, we've been talking a lot about how the, the villains in the 1960s Batman show weren't actually sp- particularly evil Mm. what they were were agents of chaos in a very conservative world they wore outlandish things they were more outlandishly sexual they were uh not you know limited by social convention uh they wore their weird kinks and fetishes out in the open and it was so offensive to the eye that they could be nothing but villains Mm. and i feel like diabolic is not entirely dissimilar i mean he's rich and handsome and he's got an amazing relationship with his girlfriend. They've just got this most intensely positive, supportive sexual relationship you could ever possibly hope to have. Um, but he doesn't, like, hurt innocent people. Mm. He And he only steals from, like, corrupt governments or shitty capitalist institutions. And he only, like, does these, like, kind of chaotic uh, uh, sort of stunts when like the police get cocky and say that we're better than diabolic mm. no you are not i'm going to ruin your press conference <laughs> that kind of thing yeah, yeah. he's just pure cocksure entertainment mm. and um, i love that the, the story is not something i could relate to you uh, it's, it's kind it's of episodic, actually. It's like three. It's like each. It's like three stories. Yeah. It's like three episodes of a show. Almost. The, the, the part I remember the best was the third episode, mm. and that's where he has a plot to steal a bunch of gold, mm. and how that that goes awry. But then he gets away with it. It's and, a hell yeah. of a hell of an ending. This mm. movie's got. I gotta tell you. But uh, yeah, and there's this whole bit where like a, a bad guy, I think it's Mario Adorf, uh, steals his uh, kidnaps his girlfriend, and he's got to like rescue her from a plane and shit. And it's stylish. It's sexy. It's cool. It's got the same anarchic energy that a lot of people really dig out of films like uh, Birds of Prey or um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's what Suicide Squad was going for. Like, you know, maybe so. just the it's, idea that they're, it's, they're, a, they're, a it's good animal, to be bad yeah. kind of thing. I mean, that's more of a Dirty Dozen movie. I just mean like celebrating the villains is basically what I'm getting at. And um, it's a hoot. And I proudly and I think with absolute justification put this on a list of the 10 best superhero movies slash supervillain <laughs> movies. I think it's, it absolutely belongs there. It's so wonderful. And so it's so itself. Yeah. It, it's, it's not even all that bizarre. I think it just is. It's just a, a fun, energetic film with a lot of yeah. color and personality to it. Uh, 
like, like I said, the plot is a little bit odd, but that doesn't yeah. make it a bad film. That just makes it a little hard to follow. Yeah, it's it's like it's I mean, like it's I, like reading like a whole bunch of comics. Yeah, and they're not necessarily supposed to like have a beginning and end. It's just like I read this run, and then I read this run, and then I read this run, and it took me about as long as it did to watch a movie. So we just made all three of those. So why not? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's a little odd why they chose this one, not only to be on Mystery Science Theater, but this was supposed to be the one that closed the series. This is the last official episode of the show mm. before, before after Netflix, a, yeah. for a long hiatus, many, many years. And yeah, it's a good film. It's an odd film. Mm. I'll grant you that. But it's a good film. And I think it's very specifically doing what it is setting out to do, which is in a very 1960s way be suave and sexy and fun and anarchic. Mm. It's great. <laughs> so yeah, I love Diabolic. It's absolutely my number one. Yeah. Excellent. Which leaves room for your number one. Uh, my number one uh, is so creamy. Uh, my number one is Kitten with a Whip, uh, oh. which is, uh, again... I actually never saw, I haven't seen this one. You've not seen Kitten with a Whip? No, oh my goodness. I haven't. Uh, I've, I've chosen several JD films. Maybe that just says a lot about my taste. Okay. Uh, more than the quality of the films that they chose. But yeah, this is uh, sort of the, not the debut, but the starring debut of one and Margaret. Uh, oh. Sex symbol par excellence. Uh, it stars, uh, is it John Forsyth? Let me look at the cast. John Forsyth. Yeah, John, I'm looking it up right now. John Forsyth is, uh, he's a married man. He's a would-be politician. He's a well-known man about town, old square guy in the square little town. And his wife is out of town, and while his wife is out of town, wouldn't you know it, Anne Margaret, who's escaped from the local JD facility. Oh, of course. Uh, where she stabbed a nun. <laughs> <laughs> has decided to hide out with this guy. And the movie is almost this, uh, it's like a little bit dark because she starts to like, sense who he is and use her own presence to blackmail him. But for a while it's this comedy of errors huh. where he's trying to hide her presence and her identity from all of the people in town because he's a, a running for office and he doesn't want anybody to know that he's looking after this hot young girl mm-hmm. while his wife is out of town. And right. what, what would the neighbors say? What would the police um, say? Yeah, <laughs> it's not good, it's, man. His reputation is more on the line than than his his role. But then, of course, more like her friends come in and like they start. He starts getting more and more embroiled in this, this criminal underworld, and there ends up being out like stabbings and a big chase to Tijuana. Uh, Anne Margaret is so delicious in this movie. She is <laughs> biting into this film uh, with so much relish. She. Uh, I, I love I love her acting style. Just she is able to like overreach in a way that feels like it's not overreaching. Like it's just appropriate <laughs> for the part. She has that Ava Green quality. She always just kind of bounces into a movie and just mm-hmm. says, "I've got my own thing." Yeah, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Oh, we just have to sort of deal with that, don't we?" Yes, you <laughs> fucking do. <laughs> and whether she's no matter who she's playing, she's always a delight. Mm. Yeah, and, and yeah, this is one of her best roles. It's one of her earliest roles, but it's still one of her best, yeah. And, and John Forsyth as well. I'm a square kind of guy. Huh. Well, I'm Anne Margaret. I love this dress you put in me. And then she has that immortal line, everything's so creamy. <laughs> is it is it camp or is it just... It, it, no, there's, there's, there's a high camp element to okay. this. For sure there is. Because it's like the seven-year itch, but without, like, without the disgusting quality that that huh. movie has. 
seven-year itch about a, a married man who has to look after Marilyn Monroe, and he has to hide the fact that Marilyn Monroe is in his apartment. What a scandal. Mm-hmm. And uh, he might actually cheat on his wife, because she's looking pretty available, and she's making herself available. That kind of like middle-aged man sex fantasy is so unbelievably well undercut yeah. by Anne Margaret's performance because that's good. She's Anne Margaret. She's a beautiful young woman, but, and the scenario does have that kind of lascivious quality to it, but she is not going to let the movie have it. Mm. She is going to play this part. Like she's a complete and utter maniac. And I love it. Nice. Yeah. Kitten with a whip is a delightful film. Wow, I, I I feel really bad that I never got around to this episode. <laughs> okay. it's, it, it's a Mike episode, right? It's it's a Mike episode. That's probably but, that's why I missed it. I'm sure. But I saw it before I ever saw it on Mystery Science Theater. It's oh, like, yeah. oh, I just get kitten with whip because I've heard a lot about it, and then and Margaret is this is a famous role of hers, and I just really really dug it. Cool. All right, well, that's the Iron List. Uh, were there any other films that you like you wanted to put on the list and didn't um, make room for? There's some. I had Phase Four on my short list. Yeah. Uh, the the first Gamera movie. Like I like those Gamera movies. They're they're like curtain. What's the one? What's the one that takes place on the alien planet and like there's the monster with a knife for a head? Oh, Godzilla versus Guiron. No, it's a uh, Gamera versus Guiron. Or Gamera, sorry, Gamera versus Gamera Gamera versus Guiron. Guiron. That Gary almost Gary made on. my list because that's one of the weirdest fucking movies they ever fucking it, yeah, it's did on the, the show. The, the knife head monster. That movie is fucking bizarre <laughs> and kind of not right. And I don't know what the hell. Like it feels like it feels like it's taking place in like a in like a disused corner of the Hauzu universe. <laughs> but like oh, this is how Hauzu does kaiju. Like it's so fucking weird. That, that first Gamera movie is like a legit movie like it, it's, it's, it's fine it's a, i don't love it but it's it's, fine. it's a cheap godzilla knockoff of course but and you know the filmmakers would admit as such but there are some gamera fans who will stand up for gamera taller than they will for godzilla wow that there's there's a, a purity to gamera and i'd love to have a hear a debate between a godzilla fan mm. and a gamera fan yeah uh, i also had the brute man on my list which is a rondo hatton oh, joint okay uh, rondo hatton, not a fan but i appreciate it yeah you you know rondo hatton uh he uh a decorated uh, war officer who got a a, a career in movies just because he had a, a, a very odd features. Very tough guy looking. Yeah, he was like a, a tough, Dick Tracy villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, just a just a, a really cool face, and yeah. uh, he was cast as like brutes in movies, and he, I think he played the parts very well. Nice. Yeah, look up Rondo Hatton. You know Rondo Hatton. That's cool. Um, okay, some of the ones that didn't quite make my list. Uh, it conquered the world. I've talked about it already. Again, I think it's a great premise couple of good performances but the movie just doesn't hold up to it and it's a shame um i appreciate teenage caveman as a proto twilight zone episode fair okay it's not a great movie but i think the story is actually stronger than it should be uh while we're on the corman viking women and the sea serpent is a lot of fun (laughs) uh it's about a bunch of viking women and their men have gone off to do what vikings do and they haven't returned for such a long time they decide to go off on a mission to rescue them and they have to fight a sea serpent and they find a misogynistic society that the viking women have to take down and it a good rewrite really would have helped that movie, but there's a lot of good material there. And I like that movie a fair amount. Um, let's see. Um, Operation double double Oh seven. is <laughs> Which su- is the actual title. That is it says- a weird, weird, weird movie that we do not talk about enough. I feel like almost like that's not the one with Sean Connery's brother. Is it, it is. Okay. Okay. So, 
This is a movie. I feel like putting this on MST3. It's also called Operation Kid Brother. That's it. Same title. Same same movie, different title. Um, People don't talk about this. And I think MST3K kind of ruined it a little bit because it became just this movie MST3K did. I feel like if this movie were discovered now, people would like make a thing out of it. Mm. Uh, But basically, it's 1967. And the plot of the movie is Mm. that James Bond, implied to be played by Sean Connery, who never actually appears in the film, mm. dies. And his younger brother, who is even cooler than Sean Connery, played by Sean Connery's actual brother, Neil Connery, has to take over the family business. And here's the thing that makes this movie fucking bizarre. They have characters, like actual character actors from the James Bond movies, basically reprising their roles in this non-James Bond movie. And I'm not talking about obscure ones. You got Bernard Lee. You got Lois Maxwell basically playing Moneypenny. <laughs> you got the bad guy from Thunderball, Adolfo Celli. It's weird. <laughs> so I kind of just admire its existence so much. And it's not bad. Like, it's very watchable. But, like, it's so weird. It, it came very close to making my list. Uh, Squirm is a better horror movie than I think <laughs> it got a little... I think its reputation warranted. Squirm's... I remember seeing Squirm on TV when I was a kid. Yeah. Just grossed out by the worms. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a good gross-out horror movie, yeah. I think. It's not an amazing movie. It's, like... But I've seen a hell of a lot worse. Uh, one of the... A couple of the movies they did on the more recent... Uh, um, the, the more recent, run. yeah, the more recent recent Netflix run are maybe not good movies, but they're interesting movies. In particular, uh, I I rather liked the Time Travelers, which is a 1964 film uh, directed by Ib Melchior, who I have a lot of respect oh, for. I, I, I like I've I've seen in Ib Melchior movies. I have a lot of respect for Ib Melchior. Ib Melchior. Uh, 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 did a lot of sci-fi. He did the Angry Red Planet. Um, he uh, yeah. co- he he wrote a bunch of stuff. Oh, he directed. Uh, he he wrote the he co-wrote the Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which is a, a sci-fi classic. They did a criterion of that. Um, he wrote the short story that Death Race Two Thousand was based on. And when he directed sci-fi features, they were surprisingly ambitious with the visual effects. And I think the Time Travelers actually looks really cool. So it's not a great movie, but it's a it's an interestingly designed film, and I think it stands up mostly on its own. Um, the Christmas that almost wasn't is like a pretty good double feature with Santa Claus where it's also kind of cheesy and stupid, but it's got an infectious quality to it. Um, so, oh, and, uh, lastly, the leech woman, which is, I think, I don't think I've seen the leech, the woman. leech woman, the leech woman is actually, I think it's actually a universal film. Um, it's actually like a pretty good idea for a monster where it's this uh, woman who, uh, because you know, the world around her is obsessed with age and beauty. Mm-hmm. She's getting older. And so she uses magic to suck the youth out of people. And it's actually a pretty decent social commentary. Yeah, it, it sounds the, like a tales from the crypt episode. It tells the crypt episode, <clears throat> universal horror. It, mm. It's pretty good. The only thing that kept it off my list was that she gets her powers from, um, like, an African tribe and that whole section oh, is pretty so, yeah. racist. And that's, that sucks. Types in there, yeah. That that sucks because other than that, it's actually not a bad monster movie, but that, that whole bit just sucks. So, um, so yeah. And I'm sure there are other episodes than uh, other movies that people dig from it, but that's what we have.
That's so uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons who voted for this particular episode. Thank you to MST3K for introducing us to a lot of these movies. Uh, we're still fans. And if you ever want some more writers or hosts, <laughs> we would love to be, uh, we would love to be involved. Um, next time on the iron list, once again, we are doing a poll. We do a poll every single month for the iron list. Our patrons get to decide if you want to join up every single tier, even $1 a month gets to vote in all our polls. Uh, and uh, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network your poll options for next month's iron list the best movies that begin with the letter b we're trying again we did this is going to be on the poll until someone picks it <laughs> and if you don't pick it that's fine but we've committed to this it's going to be on the poll until someone picks it and then when it's gone we're going to put the letter c until someone picks it we can wait our whole fucking lives if we have to. <laughs> Moving on. Your other options include the best anime feature films, uh, which is interesting because uh, one of us is more into anime than the other. Mm. So I'm curious uh, how Whitney is going to... What Whitney will put on that list. I'm very curious about that. <laughs> uh, the best movies of the 1930s. A whole uh, decade. We love covering classic cinema, and uh, you know we feel like we don't get enough opportunities, so that's a great opportunity to do that. And then lastly, the best robot movies. The best movies that have robots in them. Like Robot Monster. It's, he's kind of weird. Not, he's he's not, not a robot. robot. <laughs> he's a robot monster. Big fucking difference. Mm. Big fucking difference. Sure. How dare you? I thought I knew you. Roman is not a monster. Nor is he a robot. <laughs> discuss <laughs> wait a minute torgo's a monster no it really is <laughs> big knees go with it um so thank you again everybody uh you can follow us on twitter at critic acclaim i am at william bibiani i'm at whitney seibel if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode or anything at all feel free to email us letters at critically acclaimed.net and we might read your email in an upcoming episode of we've got mail uh this is our last episode of critically acclaimed for the year of 2020 uh, but we'll be back next year. We're going to ramp up production on some of our other shows, some of which have been on a brief hiatus, like canceled too soon. Uh, we're coming back just, with a vengeance. Just for scheduling, scheduling reasons. Yeah. It's not, not a concerted effort. Nope. We, didn't, we didn't take it off the burner. It's just... No, it's not It's not canceled. That would be very ironic. There, uh, there were a lot of personal things that got yeah, in the way the of last, this recording. The last few months of the year, listen, everyone knows 2020 sucked. Yeah. But we're trying to make 2021 better, and we are redoubling our efforts to make this hopefully... Uh, the best podcast channel you currently subscribe to. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you everyone who supports us. Thank you everyone who subscribes. Uh, thank you. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find us. That really, really helps us uh, like bump up in algorithms and come up when people search for like movie review podcasts and stuff. So if you haven't done that, that's a really great way to help the show. Um, and again, if you want to contribute financially, we would really appreciate that. We know times are hard, but to everyone who contributes, you mean the world to us, and these, these shows would not exist without you. So uh, if you want to contribute, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Um, and uh, yeah, so that is it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, push the button, Bibs. Pushing the button.